FBI negotiators are in Colleyville talking to a suspect who is holding hostages in a Colleyville synagogue. During a service that was being live streamed on Facebook this morning, some online comments indicated that there was a man inside Congregation Beth Israel holding people hostage. The hostage situation at a Colleyville synagogue is entering its 10th hour. So right now, Governor Abbott is tweeting saying all hostages are safe. The situation is over. After 11 long hours, the siege was ended when Malik Faisal Akram was killed by an elite FBI team. We'll continue to investigate his contacts. Our investigation will have global reach. We have been in contact already with multiple FBI legats to include Tel Aviv and London. Welcome back to Jewish Insider's Limited Liability Podcast. I'm Rich Goldberg. And I'm Jared Bernstein. Let's start, uh, Jared, uh, by obviously setting the scene. Uh, we had uh, the events uh, this past weekend uh, in a community close to Dallas, Texas, where a synagogue uh, was taken uh, over during services that were being live streamed uh, by a terrorist uh, demanding the release uh, of another terrorist uh, who was in prison uh, for the last 10 years, the rabbi, several congregants uh, being held hostage, nearly all of Shabbat. Uh, and finally, uh, we got the news uh, late on Saturday night after Shabbat had ended uh, that uh, after long hours of negotiations, uh, an FBI hostage rescue team, having been flown in from Quantico, taking the lead, uh, was able to uh, take out the terrorist uh, and all hostages uh, made it out uh, alive, uh, thankfully. Yeah, Rich, you know, we'll, we're thankful to Hashem. We're thankful to law enforcement, to the community to the nation that rallied behind us. I think uh, as we continue to uh, follow the investigation today, we thought we'd unpack some of the underlying ideologies of the terrorists and extremism in this country. And we have a very special guest. I'm going to leave the intro to you, but suffice to say, I'm, I'm very excited that we're able to have this, uh, this conversation going forward today. Uh, I am too. Obviously, there there are certain groups out there. I think we'll we'll talk to them about them. Uh, hopefully, um, who many would accuse of incitement uh, over the last several months uh, leading up to to this event. Uh, and uh, I think this is a very timely conversation. Uh, Imam uh, Abdullah Antepli is a fellow on Jewish-Muslim relations at the Shalom Hartman Institute and co-director of the Muslim Leadership Initiative. He is on the faculty at both Duke University Sanford School of Public Policy and Duke Divinity School, where from 2008 to 2014 he served as the university's first Muslim chaplain, one of only a handful of full-time Muslim chaplains, at U.S. colleges and universities. He was recently recognized as one of the most influential Muslims in U.S. higher education by the nonprofit Times. Imam, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning. It's my pleasure. Uh, obviously, uh, we're having this conversation uh, under difficult circumstances. We'd rather be having it uh, without what, what happened over the weekend, but but we are uh, in this situation. I think you're an incredible person and thought leader to, to help us uh, discuss some of these issues. I, I want to begin for our listeners uh, who may not have seen, uh, you had an incredible post on your Twitter feed uh, on Sunday, uh, a brief thread. I want to share a little bit of it uh, for, our, for our listeners and then have you maybe discuss it a little bit more. Houston, we have a problem. Now that the hostages are rescued, unharmed, and safely reunited with their loved ones, we North American Muslims need to have the morally required tough conversations about those, quote, 
polite Zionists are our enemies, quote, the Benjamins, voices and realities within our community we must, without ands and buts, without any further denial, dismissal, and or trivializing of the issues, we need to honestly discuss the increasing anti-Semitism within various Muslim communities. You go on from there. Uh, Imam Abdullah, incredibly powerful statement. Uh, I want to unpack it along with Jared uh, for our listeners. You declare very confidently, Muslims living in North America undeniably have an increasing anti-Semitism problem. What makes you so convinced that a problem exists more systemically than others would say? Well, uh, first of all, my deepest uh, condolences and love and sympathy and prayers of strength and resilience to Jewish communities, not only in the Dallas area, but globally. I can only as many of you were also in the synagogue on that day, around that time, uh, it could have been any synagogue. Uh, I can only imagine, and as a Muslim who have been subject to uh, violence and hatred in our houses of worship uh, for the last 20-some years, I can only imagine the shock waves of fear uh, and terror and anxiety has uh, enveloped hearts and minds of many of my Jewish brothers and sisters. So, I am sending uh, my utmost sincere prayers, and I really, really hope we can turn things around. What makes me incredibly convinced that we have an increasing anti-Semitism problem, that post came in the context in which, um, uh, in the last couple of decades, within the American Muslim communities, um, I am embedded in the American Muslim community. I'm a, I'm a proud member of the American Muslim community. I love my, I love my community. But this community is increasingly becoming vulnerable towards various forms of subtle and unsubtle anti-Semitism in the name of pro-Palestinian activism. We have every right to be pro-Palestinian, and I proudly consider myself as such, one of the very few labels that I feel comfortable putting on myself. But pro-Palestinian activism has no place for hate, for anti-Semitism of any kind. But regretfully, for complicated reasons as the Palestinian lives and tragedy and suffering has further deteriorated in the Middle East, many bad faith actors are taking and desecrating Palestinian suffering, solidarity with the Palestinians, and in the name of their suffering are promoting irresponsibly uh, anti-Semitism, anti-Jewish hatred, and they are taking their political, legitimate political criticism, crossing the line and trafficking in the good old anti-Semitism that the Jewish community and others have suffered for the last two millennia. Imam, do you think this is done uh, consciously or this is sort of an unconscious thing that, that just happens? Or do you think that the pro-Palestinian activists who cross over into anti-Semitism are doing it willfully uh, and purposefully? Any form of hate has two major categories, Islamophobia, homophobia, racism, one category is quote-unquote innocent. People don't know any better. They don't have enough knowledge, education, exposure. And usually the majority, like look at Islamophobia, people who hate Islam or feel uncomfortable with Muslims. If you live in a 9-11 era, after 9-11, all you hear is jihad, terrorism, violence, and etc. And you listen to certain media outlets and constant expose the toxic information about Islam and Muslims, inevitably you will develop these bias, hatred, etc. So some, most of it, again, majority of it is uh, quote-unquote innocent. It could be healed with some education, diversification of sources of information, um, and it could be or interaction and exposure to various uh, communities. 
But as again, in, in every form of uh, hate and uh, racism, there is a small uh, growing and somewhat organized minority uh, anti-Semitism industry in the name of pro-Palestinian activism, uh, who are intentionally and deliberately organizing, disseminating information and pushing the envelope. Uh, it is undeniable to see some of those efforts uh, and organizations spending money and putting ideological and institutional zeal into this. Before I make a lot, many more fellow Muslims uncomfortable and defensive, all I am saying is just activate the golden rule. What is the golden rule in every religion, in every wisdom tradition, which is embedded, which is the heart and soul of Islam? If you are like treat people the way you, you want to be treated. Since 9-11, whenever the discourse uh, is toxic, whenever anti-Muslim uh, conversations increase, part 51, or Quran burning, like whenever the discourse is so toxic, you see inevitably increase in the hate and crimes against Muslims. So to see this Dallas incident as uh, just one mentally sick person, uh, just an episodic in incident has nothing to do with the broader discourse within the Muslim community. It is, it is unthinkable. It is, it is a moral failure. I am not saying those anti-Semitic discourse is directly causing this information, but they are not disconnected. It is related. Uh, whenever there was a Part 51 controversy, there was a mosque burning in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. What did we Muslims say? What do you expect? Of course, if you dial up the Muslim hate, people will take uh, and resort to violence. Here at Duke University, the Duke Chapel about five years ago, six years ago, on their own, they wanted to do the azan, the call to prayer from Duke Chapel. I don't know if you remember that scandal kind of controversy. And Franklin Graham, incredibly a regretful Christian pastor, son of Billy Graham, turned this into a xenophobic anti-Muslim propaganda. And three weeks later, three weeks later, three incredibly beautiful young UNC students were killed execution style. Three weeks later, after this Muslim prayer controversy, and what did we Muslims say? What do you expect? Of course, if people like Franklin Graham and others are poisoning the well and poisoning the hearts and minds of Americans about Islam and Muslims, of course these incidents will happen. So before this incident, I speak with uh, <clears throat> conviction uh, because your audience may, may not have heard just about a couple of months ago, American Muslims for Palestine has put together a regretfully anti-Semitic report declaring 90 plus percent of American Jews as non-kosher. And in the convention where this report is discussed by very prominent American Muslim leaders, one of the most regretful voices, Ms. Zahra Billow from CARE, uh, the largest Muslim civil rights organization in the United States, on the podium uh, to hundreds of participants, declared all the polite Zionists, every single American Jew and American Jewish organization has any loyalty, sympathy, respect, or connection to Israel as our enemies. As our enemies. This is recorded. If this is not anti-Semitic, and if this is not flaming the fans of anti-Semitism, what is? And here, a few weeks later, we are having these kind of incidents. It is a moral call. Muslim community has all they need to activate 
the golden rule and empathy because we are facing a similar kind of hatred. We shouldn't do unto others what others are doing unto us. No, I'm sorry, no, I went too long. But I cannot express my frustration and anger enough how sad I am that a vulnerable, minor, uh, <clears throat> marginalized community like mine, we are exactly doing to the Jewish community what's being and, done and to Imam, us. I just want to tell you, as a longtime Bloomberg staffer, one of my proudest moments working for Mike Bloomberg is when he was uh, when he stood up and made it clear what we ought to be doing as a country when the with the Park 51 mosque and, and never been prouder. Always proud to work for Mike Bloomberg, but never prouder than that day. I know Rich has a question here, but I just wanted to sort of editorialize for, for, Thank for 15 you. seconds there. Thank you. It was a yeah. proud moment. It was a proud moment. And there were many, not only uh, Mayor Bloomberg, but others. But there were also regretful people like the uh, then CEO of ADL, uh, Mr. Abe Foxman and other Jewish voices or rotten souls like Steve Emerson, Pamela Geller and David Yerushalmi, those Muslim haters. They used the opportunity, uh, Part 51 controversy, to declare collectively the Muslim community as the fifth column, as a threat to our national security. Imam, you, you touched on something that, that's obviously uh, very uh, much uh, right now top of mind for a lot of our listeners, and that is, you know, you're talking about the sort of organizations uh, that typify the, that tor- sort of toxicity uh, creation uh, and the divisions. Care being being at the top of the list, Council on American Islamic Relations. Yes. Um, do Do you believe they represent any large sense, you know, size of the of the Muslim community, or is this a very small uh, percentage voice that they are they are reflecting? Because in the media, they have an outsized presence, uh, where where they're, you know, we're sort of made to believe this is the view of the American Muslim community. Right. Right. Um, it is a $1 million and unanswerable question who represents American Muslim communities. I think that's part of the main issue for many Americans, including Jewish Americans. They are having a hard time understanding American Muslim community as it is not uh, organized in any form and shape, the way the Catholic community, the way the Protestant community or the Jewish community is organized. There is no denominational breakdown. It is incredibly decentral. It is one of the most ethnically, racially, sectarian-wise diverse community. So the, the short answer is no, they don't represent the Muslim community. If you look into these uh, organizations of alphabet soup, of CARE and AMP and others, etc., at most, if you look into PRRI or the Pew and Gallup, those who are studying sociologically American Muslim communities, at most, they represent 10% of the Muslim community. But the problem is, as you said, they are the only products in the market. They are the only public voices and faces in the, in the American mainstream, American media, American discourse. So the part of my frustration, why other 90% is allowing these toxic, incredibly problematic, increasingly uh, involved in hateful rhetoric people are representing American Islam. And it has a lot to do with the way in which uh, American Muslim communities still ethnically diverse and they don't know how to come up and speak in an organized voice. We will get there in a one or two generation, but regretfully these people are taking advantage of their monopoly in the organized Muslim space and bullying the Muslim community, being a toxic, hateful gatekeepers and uh, doing all sorts of damage. And that's, I mean, hence my frustration and anger. 
um, as angry as I am to the care or these irresponsible, hateful people, I am more angry with the 90% of the sleeping, uh, inactive American Muslim majority. Enough is enough. What would take, as I said in, those, in that post earlier, what would take for a moral awakening that we can finally do not let these people to be the face and voice of American Islam? And create different pipelines of leadership, different organizations, so that the mainstream Muslim American quality, connection, integration to American society, and the representation of the mainstream non-toxic American Muslim Islamic theology will be the main discourse. But regretful, that is not the case. These organizations, part of the problem is, I will be very honest here, care, AMP and other organizations. Do you have another two minutes for a boring history lesson? There's no boring history lesson. Two thirds of the the American Muslim community. And and for for and for for our listeners, AMP Americans for Muslim in Palestine. Yes, American Muslims for Palestine, uh, based in Chicago, Um, or organizations like Electronic Intifada and others, uh, and various forms of. Uh, pro-Palestinian activism, and which is in itself is not a problematic, but these platforms are increasingly being uh, unfortunately vulnerable towards uh, subtle and unsubtle hate and anti-Semitism. And uh, these organizations, um, two-thirds of the American Muslim community came after 1965. So many of these organ, of course, Muslims, they brought with them whatever those Muslim majority societies they came from in the Middle East, in North Africa, in South Asia. And of course, the Islamic organizations, Islamic communities and centers that they have built are had understandably some relationship with that country of origin. But as we move forward and integrate ourselves to American society, regretfully, we were not able to filter out some of the toxic, hateful, uh, rigid, potentially violent interpretations of Islam represented by Ikhwan, represented by Wahhabism, represented by uh, certain fringe elements within the Jamaat Islami. This may not be these names may not be clear to the audience, but these are these are people who represent the ideologies behind the 20th century, 21st century extremism, Islamism, um, and jihadism, etc. So. There is no doubt these organizations have historical roots with these toxic movements and groups. And the American Muslim community, that 90% is having a hard time how to identify and discuss these toxic roots without being labeled as a fifth column. Because if American Muslim community openly come and says these organizations, in their inception, they have toxic DNAs, then people like Steve Emerson, Pamela Geller, David Yerushalmi, these rotten souls, these detractors of Islam, haters of Islam, will will be proven right. correct, and the entire American Muslim community and our loyalty, our space and place in American society will be at right. question. This is the trick, like how to, uh, because you you will never understand how toxic care is unless you go back to its roots, unless you see some of the problematic DNAs only manifesting in this so, form and shape. Imam, that's- no, that, that is very helpful, and it's a perfect setup for my next question, actually. Um, so there is a push from hmm. some of the members of Congress that, who are part of the squad um, to focus on Islamophobia, for the State Department to create a global envoy for Islamophobia, like we have an anti-Semitism envoy. 
Do we think, or do you think that that is a sincere effort or is it a way to deflect and evade some of the accusations of anti-Semitism, or can it be both at the same time? Um, if you could discuss that a little bit, uh, you know, I have, I have sure. my feelings, Rich has um, his, but interested to hear yours. I teach, I teach ethics here at Duke University. Uh, so from both a secular angle, the Socratic rational schools of ethics in uh, ethics uh, out of Athens, Greek philosophy, or the religious ethics of any kind, Abrahamic and non-Abrahamic. Of course, the field of ethics is incredibly diverse, but there are a few things incredibly common and universal. Ethics have to be consistent. It cannot apply one way and it doesn't apply another way. I think what these squad and others are promoting are right message by the wrong messengers. These are people who are not morally consistent. They are, they are not in their demand of Islamophobia. They are correct. We have an Islamophobia problem. We have an increased anti-Muslim hatred problem. There is a violence against Islam as a religion and Muslim communities and Muslim organizations. It's real. Three miles from my house six years ago, three Muslim UNC students killed in an execution style. This is not fiction. But being the wrong ambassadors, these squad and others, those who are politicizing the issue by not demanding the similar uh, amount of diligence on issues like anti-Semitism and others, I think they have no moral ground to stand on. I hope many more will focus on the message and take away uh, from the politicization uh, of, uh, of these politicians and really focus on the problem itself, Islamophobia, both Republican, Democrat and others. Those who really abhor and appalled by hate of any kind will focus on the issue and not, not allow these people to monopolize, monopolize the discourse on Islamophobia. We need to take hate of any kind very seriously. Imam Abdullah, I, I do want to sort of take a step back for a moment um, for our listeners. Talk about your journey personally, um, how, how you've come to this sort of role, your work at Shalom Hartman Institute. Um, what is your personal journey of how you've gotten to be where you are today? Thank you. That requires uh, many, many hours of conversation. But probably two, two, at least two books, at least two books, probably. Yeah. Yes. You and my wife keep demanding that I should write uh, at least a couple of books. Uh, there are two uh, elements I want to highlight. One, as I always publicly uh, introduce myself, as I am a recovering anti-Semite. I have a first-hand experience of anti-Semitism. Uh, growing up in a very secular, not religious, very chauvinist Turkish nationalist household in the southeastern part of Turkey, my parents, my early teachers, they were all anti-Semitic. So as I becoming a teenager, trying to understand the world, trying to understand why Muslims are Muslim civilizations are going through a dark age, why are we perpetually failing as Muslims, economically, socially, politically, culturally, you are trying to understand the complexities of the broken Middle East. I was exposed to a very sophisticated uh, anti-Semitic propaganda who answered all these complicated questions. That's the power of hate. It gives convincing, simplistic, black and white answers to very complicated questions. That literature convinced me all the misery that Muslims around the world are going through because of the Jews. They were behind media, behind banks, behind everything. They were the enemies of Islam and wanted to humiliate and destroy Islam. So I, my, the first book I read about Jews and Judaism at the age of 12 or 13 was the uh, Henry Ford's uh, International Jew. 
or I'm sorry, uh, together with the protocols of the children's version, children's version of the protocols of the elders of Zion, children's version, uh, updated through Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and then Henry Ford's international Jew, and then Mein Kampf, a few times before the age of 15. So look at this, a Russian literature translated a German literature, anti-Semitic literature, translated into beautiful Turkish, quote-unquote beautiful, and given to me as part of my education. So what saved me is my religion. When I became religious, when I attended the religious schools, with the moral framework that religion trying to build in you, I couldn't reconcile the, the fact that I was feeling and convinced that Jews as people, Judaism as religion, are irredeemably evil. Learning religion and embedding myself in the ethical moral literature in my religion has slowed me down. And then after coming to the United States, meeting God-loving, God-fearing Jews like yourselves, it was a slap in the face. You know, if you're an ethical, moral person, once you realize you're a hater, you have to take that incredibly seriously. It's not a switch on and off. I took the nearest exit, driving in the opposite direction since then. But I am trying to take my recovery seriously so that I am not alone. There are many other Muslims around the world as vulnerable and exposed to similar kind of poison as well. That uh, this, as uh, Jared's earlier question, there is an organized campaigns and industries of hate trying to corrupt the souls and hearts and minds of Muslims. In the same level of intentionality, commitment and zeal, we have to work against this hate. This is where I'm coming from. Wow. I want to, Imam, that's, that's incredible. And I look forward to the book. <laughs> Count me, count me among them. Thank you. Thank you. I, I need to write a couple of books. One of them will be a recovering anti-Semite's journey. I say recovering. Also, uh, many people could look into my work at Shalom Hartman and all the things that I'm trying to do in Jewish Muslim space and consider me as recovered. But uh, I don't believe so because hate is like a viral infection. If it's get into your system early in your developmental stage, it is a, it is a, it requires a lifelong commitment to contain that virus because it never goes away. It always comes back in the most vulnerable ways. And, and therefore, I will keep the recovering anti-Semite label, which, which morally rings in my, in my ears and in my heart that I have to work hard. I have, look, one of, the, one of the largest and existing civil rights organization in the United States, in the name of my community, in the name of my religion, spewing anti-Semitism at a time where anti-Semitism is all-time high, at a time 60% of the religiously affiliated or in, uh, religiously inspired violences against Jews and Judaism. It's anti-Semitic literature. These people have no shame. Uh, Imam Abdullah, uh, I'm curious for some of your views um, for some of the issues that we've grappled with. Um, as Americans in foreign policy, but also those who study the Middle East, those who are living in the Middle East, um, different countries, Israel, uh, our Arab friends uh, and neighbors as well. Uh, and that is uh, where we are 20 years on from 9-11 um, with uh, radical ideologies uh, within the Muslim world, not, not in the United States, but, but abroad, um, uh, more importantly. One of the lessons we, we really talked about in the 20-year anniversary of 9-11 was that the American military can do a lot of things. It can't win an ideological war. That's something that has to happen mm -hmm. from within the, the Muslim community. 
what is the state of that war, if you will, from within, as far as the struggle between uh, moderate or, as some would say, traditional Islam versus those who exploit it uh, into extremism? Richard, thank you. you. You've been asking, both of you have been asking profound questions. <clears throat> regretfully, regretfully, we are nowhere in defeating the evil ideology behind 9-11. We are nowhere. And regretfully, American foreign policy, our national security, regretfully, uh, do not know how to fight and defeat enemy in the, on the ideological and civilizational ground. All we know is how to fight militar militaristically. But what we are ultimately fighting is not uh, just the terrorists with weapons. We are fighting with an evil, sickening, distorted, perverted ideology and interpretation of religion. You cannot put a bullet through an ideology. We didn't defeat Nazi Germany only militarily. We also defeated them ideologically as a global community, so much contribution from the American uh, society, government. We remain and get involved in the process of defeating Nazi ideology, thankfully. Uh, it's still there, but still in the margins of German society. We didn't defeat imperial Japan and that imperial colonial ideology only militarily. We also were part of a solution and defeated this uh, ideologically, socially, economically. Uh, regretfully, we lost that culture, it seems. We are going after this only militarily, almost primarily militarily. Therefore, we are defeating them in Afghanistan. They show up in Syria and Iraq. We are defeating them there. They show up in East Africa and West Africa. And this regretful cycle and tragic cycle will continue unless we take this uh, very seriously. The terrorism, jihadism, Islamism, violence and extremism in the name of Islam is a product of three things. One, evil, perverted ideology, much of which are rooted in the Wahhabi teaching of Islam. And here we are after 20 years of 9-11, we are nowhere even close to discuss the Saudi Arabia, its involvement with Wahhabi ideology, our allyship, our inconvenient marriage, being in bed with this evil ideology is as strong as it gets. We are nowhere even critically analyzing. Even 9-11, 17 out of 19 hijackers were Saudi Arabian citizens. We never even questioned this relationship and this evil ideology's ability to export itself around the world through petrol dollars. Nowhere. We are nowhere there. And uh, ideologically, we have to go to the root causes of Wahhabism and other forms of uh, perverted, violent, extremist ideologies, I can say more. So there is an ideology and an interpretation of religion that we need to go after. But that's not the only religion. Second source of root causes are economic, social, political, and cultural. These people are not just reading somewhere in the desert Saudi Arabia of some version of Quran and getting violent. The political, economic, social, cultural Deeply broken societies only produce nothing but violence, death, and destruction. So we are nowhere like Marshall Plans and other ways of helping these deeply broken societies and communities who are keep producing terrorists to recover their civilizational health. And the third is incredibly toxic, patriarchal, 
tribal cultural practices and norms and forms of government and dictatorships and lack of democracy and human rights and civil liberties in these regions. We have to recover, we have to help and enable, we have a moral responsibility to our Muslim majority societies in all three fronts to recover their overall civilizational health. Only then, only then we can say we can make progress. I am not even sure if we are militarily making any progress. Look, there are more terrorists now than 20 years ago. There are more terrorist safe havens than 20 years ago. There are more deeply held frustration, anger towards West and American foreign policy than 20 years ago. I am sorry to present a very bleak picture, but that is the reality. And I think our listeners would be curious your views on some of the political manifestations um, in, in different parts of the Middle East. Um, how do you grapple with the concept of political Islam? How do you, how do you view groups like the Muslim Brotherhood? Political Islam and or any form of political politically um, embedded religious ideology is pure evil. You see it in everywhere, including Turkey. Look at what Erdogan is doing right now in the name of political Islam. It's destroying one of the most democratic, economically prosperous country in the Muslim majority world. It was an ideal Muslim majority society who could have been a bridge between the West and the East, who could have produced potentially the first indigenous homegrown Muslim democracy but look at this political Islamist ideology. Once they grab the power, they go back to their factory defaults. They are power-hungry, uh, hegemonic, uh, and toxic uh, ideologies. And they are e you are either with them or against them. And they are there to destroy unless they see their political Islamist agenda uh, is, is fully established. You can never trust these people. Uh, and I, I despise every form of political religious ideology of any kind. And my community and global Muslim community is suffering many different forms of this political Islamism. That's why it's, a, it's imperative for American Muslim organizations to analyze, fight against and defeat the political Islamist agenda within the American Muslim organizations like CARE and AMP and others. Imam, you're a fellow and you co-direct the Muslim Leadership Initiative at the Shalom Harman Institute, which is based in Jerusalem. Yes. How do your colleagues in the Muslim community react to an affiliation with an Israeli-based institute? Diversity of reaction to this MLI program is a very helpful window in which you can really, through the controversies and scandals, public uh, uh, discussion uh, and the private discussion that not many people see, there is a very loud incredibly, incredibly loud and vicious reaction opposition to this program because mainly by the absolutist followers of the BDS movement, which CARE and AMP and Electronic Intifada and others are involved. Regretfully, it's the same situation we are discussing. Public discourse about this program is vilification uh, because we cross the picket line, because we violate the academic BDS because we are engaging with Zionist and Israeli academic educational institutions. It's an educational program, as you know, where American and Canadian Muslims are learning about Judaism, Jews, Zionism, and Israel, trying to make sense of the world or understand the world through the eyes of our fellow citizens who happen to be Jewish. But there is also a, 
again, a silence or private support, love and appreciation and impact. There are the, regretfully much of the support to the program and respect to the program, admiration of the program, or the real desire to see this program fulfilling its promise and healing the divides within Jews and Muslims in North America, regretfully remain to be silent and private, not public, because of the incredible power of these belligerent bullies that CARE and AMP and the Electronic Intifada people are um, represented by. So, Imam, we have something we do, um, and we've, we've talked about a lot of heady, uh, thoughtful, serious topics today, um, and we're, we're happy for it. We like to do something at the end of each one of our podcasts where we lighten things up a little bit and, and ask a series of questions to get a little bit more of a sense of you, who you are <laughs> when we're not talking about the, 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 the great questions of our age. So we're going to go through and ask you three or four questions. And I have um, one in mind myself in addition to your questions. Okay, great. Um, what is your favorite phrase in Arabic and your favorite phrase in Hebrew? Ah, uh, <laughs> can I blend the two? Absolutely. My favorite Hebrew slash Arabic term is Baruch Allah. You know, <laughs> Baruch Hashem and Alhamdulillah is so central. You don't even have to be religious. You go to uh, the state of Tel Aviv and on the beach, the citizens of state of Tel Aviv casually would say Baruch Hashem when you ask them, how are you? What's up? And then same thing with Muslims. Alhamdulillah is such a praise be to Lord. Uh, and that sense of gratitude, I always in the Jewish Muslim circles blend it too. And it unlocks incredible amount of goodwill and creative energy and spiritual presence of the Hashem, God Almighty. I always, when people, a Jew or a Muslim, in the Jewish Muslim context ask me, uh, how are you, Kifak, Shuach Barak, or Mashrum Kha? I say Baruch Allah. Uh, and yeah, Imam, do you have a favorite restaurant or favorite food uh, when you're in Israel or anywhere else in the Middle East? Absolutely, absolutely. Two. The <clears throat> Azura in Machne Yehuda. I think that place is, uh, I, I don't work for them. I don't take their commissions. I have no commercial <laughs> business relationship with them. But I think uh, in terms of Holy Land and the sanctity of the place, that Azura restaurant in, in the Jerusalem market in Machne Yehuda, uh, uh, they are Sephardic Jews, uh, people who came from northern Iraq and Syria, built this cuisine there. If you haven't eaten, it is incredible. And my second favorite restaurant is the Palestinian restaurant in Jaffa, Old Man and the Sea. Old Man and the Sea, it oversees the beautiful Mediterranean Sea and uh, it is an incredible place. Unfortunately, it's not fully kosher, but uh, for those who eat uh, or who have a little bit more flexible kosher practices, the fish and the, and the kind of vegetarian matza and the appetizers there are heavenly. I, I experience in both Azura and, and the Old Man and the Sea a semi-religious transcendental spiritual uh, uh, moment whenever I go there. Excellent, excellent. I actually think I've been there. Um, so, it's an amazing right, last question, Imam. Uh, favorite Duke basketball player of all time? <laughs> of I'll course, mine is Reggie Love. Because if Reggie hears this, and I don't say Reggie Love, he's going to be very upset with me. Who's your favorite well, Duke basketball player of all time? Until this year, it was Zion. Uh, but this year, Paolo is—he uh, was a student in my class, so I am incredibly biased. He's a freshman and a rising star. He will make all of us 
incredibly proud. I was in a Miami game only a couple of days ago. I think he is becoming one of the upcoming incredible stars uh, of the of the religion of Blue Devil. He will be the ambassador and the prophet of this basketball religion, and he will make us all of us proud. <laughs> Let me add one lighthearted one lighthearted um, thing. I saw it on Twitter. Uh, his name is not very clear, but I I uh, I mentioned his Twitter account on my tweet, and I want I hope everybody will say Vimro Amin to his statement. The only hostage situation in a synagogue should be the hostage by the rabbi's bad sermon. There should not be any other hostage situation. Only acceptable or tolerable hostage situation is because sermon is just unbearable and you are held hostage by the, by the length of that sermon. Let's take this very seriously. This incident is in the context in which anti-Semitism is all time high by non-Jewish organizations are verifying and it's, it's, it's appalling, it's disgusting, it's reprehensible, it's not who we are. And especially our achievements and success and progress that we have made in defeating anti-Semitism on religious ground, on ideological ground, on nationalistic ground, we are regressing and old habits are dying hard. We are all recovering anti-Semites and these viruses, as we relax our healthy pressure on them, is coming to haunt us. Let's take it seriously and let's make sure our podcast, podcast, next podcast, will be over not any other uh, tragic incident, uh, anti-Semitic or Islamophobic or otherwise. Amen. Amen, as you say. Amen. Imam Abdullah, thank you so much for joining us on Jewish Insiders Limited Liability Podcast. Thank you very much. Greetings and peace to all of you and your audience. Jared, that was uh, an incredible conversation, an important one uh, for not just Jewish listeners to hear. I think everybody should be listening to this podcast and this interview uh, and following the imam uh, on his Twitter feed and his writings. Uh, did not hold back punches on a group like Care, which obviously is very much front and center on people's minds right now after many months of incitement, uh, but but also you know not not being. Uh, what aboutism or anything like that, you know, calling out anti-Semitism and it's a, it's a strong and welcome voice and we need more partners and we need to be partners with the Imam in his community as well. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I found really powerful what he said about talking about being pro-Palestinian, advocating for Palestinian rights, but not having that cause conflated with anti-Semitism. Uh, you know, more people who want to be for the Palestinian cause really need to kind of understand that that is something that's possible. And I was really happy that the Imam addressed it and talked about uh, Islam, you know, Islamism and some of how we got to where we are now and where we're going. And I will say for those who have tracked the long war, the war on terror, uh, we obviously talked a lot about this at the 20th anniversary last year of 9-11. I think also some very uh, real comments that we need to take to heart on the state of uh, radical Islamism in in the Middle East, uh, especially, and what we are going to do about um, that ideology going forward. Uh, We we need more Imam Abdullahs. We do. We do. Inshallah. If you like the show, help us get the word out to other people. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And most importantly, tell your friends because it's the best recommendation we can get. Until next time, this is Limited Liability Podcast. Thanks for listening.
Oh, 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 oh,